You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Today, as we mentioned last Shabbat, Guided by Truth is the sermon series. And if you would turn with me to the book of Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, giving you just a sheet to take some notes on. Going back to school, I hope this is not boring for you. For thousands of years, people have debated whether God exists, and most conclude can't be proven can't be proven one way or the other. It's actually surmised that the correct answer lies in the area of abstract philosophy or metaphysical and the metaphysical. Others become agnostics, asserting that they don't know if God exists. Those who do accept God's existence often do passively, merely because they were taught it from childhood. Some don't even care. And the writer of Kohelet says this in verse 4, A generation comes and a generation goes. I was reading from a book entitled Meet Generation Z. I want to read you some quotes from it. Drop everything and start paying attention to Generation Z, which now constitutes 25.9% of the U.S. population. That's more than millennials, 24.5%. That's more than Gen X, my generation, 15.4%. Even more than baby boomers, 23.6%. In 2020, members of Gen Z accounted for 40% of all consumers. They will not simply influence American culture as any generation would. They will constitute American culture. So who falls into Generation Z? There's still some debate on exact dates, but essentially it involves those who are born after Generation Y, so approximately 1995 to around 2010. It's a generation that is now collectively under the age of 25. The author goes on to say, according to marketing research, here are the top Generation Z headlines. They are eager to start working. That's true. My daughter starts work on Wednesday after graduation. They are mature and in control. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but that's what the (laughs) research says. They intend to change the world. They've learned that traditional choices don't guarantee success. Entrepreneurship is in their DNA. They seek education and knowledge, and they use social media as a research tool. They multitask across five screens, and their attention spans are getting shorter. They think spatially and in 4D, but lack situational awareness. They communicate with symbols, speed, and images. Their social circles are global. They are hyper-aware and concerned about humanity's impact on the planet. They are less active and frequently obese. They live-stream and co-create. The biggest headline of all, less than half attend weekly religious services of any kind, and only 8% would cite a religious leader as a role model. The largest single religious category in the Harvard Crimson's by the number survey of the class of 2019 was agnostic, 21.3%. Most children raised in believers' homes enter a stage, often during their teenage years, where they wonder if their parents' faith is right 
for them. And so during that time of questioning, some embraced their parents' faith, making it their own faith. But others turn away to walk another road. There's a Pew Research Center found that belief in the existence of God had dropped 15 points in the preceding five years among Americans aged 30 and younger. This was a, about a 10-year-old survey. The trend has been studied really for the past 30 years, and it shows that just 68% of millennials agree with the statement, quote, I never doubt the existence of God. That's down from 76% in 2009 and 83% in 2007. So it's my conviction, and I've shared this privately with some of you, that if you never struggle with your faith, you will have borrowed convictions. As a parent of two young adults, ages 25 and 22, my philosophy, my wife's philosophy, is to help them independently recognize the love of God and to sort out their emotional from their intellectual concerns about God. You see, my friends, doubting your faith can be a good thing. Because you know that you're at least thinking about the important issues and you want to know the truth. As human beings, we all have limitations, right? We all experience doubts simply because we can't know all the answers. But I want you to be encouraged that you're not alone. Whether you have the courage, or what you need to do is actually have the courage to what we could call doubt your doubts. Investigate, seek the truth. Because sometimes the root cause of your doubt turns out to be not to be even unanswered questions at all. Sources could include maybe in your life experiencing failure, experiencing disappointment, experiencing pain, experiencing some loss, or having unresolved conflicts or wounds as we shared and Earl shared earlier from our father, from our past maybe that need to be addressed. Letting unruly emotions carry us away for no good reason could be one of these reasons why we doubt our faith, etc., being spiritually dry also can contribute to this. And fearing to really commit to people also can be a source. Emotions are normal, but they're not always right. I thought it was ridiculous for the shooter's mother to say he had reasons for doing what he... No, sorry. Emotions need to be examined. I may be today emotionally down, but that may have nothing to do whatsoever with my confidence that God exists. If you find yourself doubting, you're in good company. Go with me in the New Covenant, Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9. Let's pick it up today in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a big crowd around them and the Torah scholars arguing with them. Suddenly, when the whole crowd saw Yeshua, they were amazed and began running to greet him. And he questioned them, what are you arguing with them about? And a man from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes stiff. I told your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And answering them, he said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Yeshua. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it threw the boy into a convulsion. The boy fell to the ground and began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Yeshua asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Since he was a child, the man answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. If you can, Yeshua said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out, I believe, here's the key, Help my unbelief. 
You see, having courage to doubt your doubts and investigate their cause leads to greater confidence as a follower of Adonai and his son Yeshua. That is what this journey of faith is all about. On the other hand, thousands of teenagers who claimed no religious system of belief said when interviewed several years ago for the National Study of Youth and Religion, they had been raised to be religious, but over time they had become non-religious. The teenagers were asked in an open question, open-ended question with no real set answers for them to choose from why they left the faith in which they were raised. And the most common answer, 32%, one out of three of them said, was intellectual skepticism. Their answers included, quote, some stuff was just too far-fetched for me to believe in. Quote, I think scientifically there is no proof. Quote, there were too many questions that can't be answered. And so it's clear that young people are leaving the faith. They're leaving it behind because the believing community, we, are failing to engage their minds as well as their hearts. But why should there be such doubt, such confusion about the existence of God? My friends, you can learn of absolute proof that God exists. You do not have to accept his existence merely on faith. Science has learned much. The case for God's existence has become far stronger than any other time in human history. Some proofs of this will amaze you. Others will inspire you even. Still others will excite you. And all of them actually will fascinate you because they're so simple. Louis Pasteur, who revolutionized the medical field with vaccines for rabies and anthrax, who developed the process, as you know, for pasteurization for milk, of milk while laying the foundation for the control and eventual development of vaccines for tuberculosis, diphtheria, tetanus, many other diseases, was quoted as saying this. I love this. Quote, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. Science brings men nearer to God. Even science and the order of creation are not at odds with one another. The book of Genesis, written 4,000 years ago, captures what scientists are now still uncovering today. But most of our worldviews are shaped by mass media rather than biblical literacy. Consider some of the beliefs of young, conservative self-professed believers today. These are young people who are walking with the Lord. 18% believe that God is either a personal being who created the world but is not involved in the world today or is an impersonal entity, something like a cosmic force. That's one out of five young believers. 23% of them are not assured of the existence of miracles. Nearly one out of four young believers don't believe in miracles. 33%, 33%, one out of three, either definitely or maybe believe in reincarnation. These are believers, professing young believers. 42% are not assured of the existence of evil spirits. And 48% believe, this is one out of every two, self-professing young believers believe many religions may be true. The implication of these statistics, my friends, is staggering to us. How can young people have vibrant prayer lives when nearly one in five don't believe God's personally involved in the world today? How can young people avoid falling into the adversary's trap when more than two in five are not even assured of the existence of evil spirits? How can our young people today confidently believe that Yeshua is the way, the truth, and the life 
when nearly one in two believe that many religions may be true. That is why the scriptures place a prime importance for spiritual transformation on the training of the mind. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, quote, do not let yourselves be what conform to the standards of this world. Instead, keep what? Letting yourself be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Studies reveal that the majority of youth, 81%, have adopted the view that, quote, all truth is relative to the individual and his or her circumstances. That's a George Barnes survey from quite a while ago, and I'm sure it's even worse than that today. And so as a result of our cultural divide, many have been trained to compartmentalize belief in God away from their daily lives, to keep their beliefs about God in the private, objective, subjective realm rather than to consider them objective knowledge. How can young people today see objectively that God is undeniable and simply cannot be, quote, true for one person and false for another? Listen, if I placed a jar of marbles in front of three of you and asked you how many marbles are in the jar, you, the three might respond with different guesses. Well, there's 221 marbles, 147 marbles, 168 marbles. Then if I, after that, I let those three know that the correct number of marbles was 188, and I asked the three which one of you is closest to being right, you would all agree that 168 was the closest of those three guesses, and you would all agree that the number of marbles was a matter of fact, not personal preference. But if then I passed out Starburst candies to each one of you and I asked you which flavor is right, as you might expect, you would all feel that was an unfair question because each of you has a preference that is right for you. And you would be correct because the right flavor has to do with the person's preferences. It's a matter of subjective opinion or personal preference, not objective fact. So are spiritual claims like the numbers of marbles in a jar, or are they a matter of personal opinion like preferences for flavors of Starburst? The messianic faith, my friends, is based on an objective fact in history, the resurrection of Yeshua. And while many people might reject the historical resurrection of Messiah, it is not the type of claim that can be true for them but not true for somebody else. My friends, the tomb either was empty or it was occupied on the third day, right? There's no middle ground on that. The Bible makes this clear when it says, quote, and if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is useless and you are still in your sins. The Messianic faith is total truth in that it encompasses all of reality, sacred as well as secular reality public as well as private. The Messianic faith has an objective view of creation, the nature of God, the nature of man, and the authenticity of the scriptures. You see, one of the greatest obstacles I face, and I'm sure many of you face it here as well in speaking to people, not just young people, is their distorted view of truth. The scriptures warn us that people perish for not loving truth. Unless we rebuild the foundation of truth, people will, quote, be tossed about by the waves and blown along by every wind of teaching at the mercy of people clever in devising ways to deceive. And I believe that deeply rooted in the hearts of people is the awareness that truth is really a necessary bedrock for life. 
Last Shabbat, we began with the evidence that is all around us and the evidence that is inside of us by way of three main arguments for God. The cosmological, the teleological, and the moral. And getting us to grapple with the arguments for God helps us several ways it helps us. Number one, it allows us to intellectually dialogue with other non-believing students, other non-believing friends, other non-believing family members, a lot of non-believing teachers about God's existence without even using the Bible. It challenges us to take a deeper ownership of our faith. It makes us aware that there are different and godless views out there in the world. It encourages us to see Why science and faith are compatible. Science answers the how questions. Faith answers the why questions. I want to continue along the line and looking at the evidence inside of us today by dealing with a couple of arguments from the mind, reason, and consciousness. And and listen, this is kind of, for those of you who who have taken a logic class, may appreciate it. The rest of you might go to sleep. But the argument from reason, what is the argument? What is an argument for reason? It's an argument that says that the existence of reason and logic within the human mind is evidence of a reasonable and logical creator. And since humans are capable of logic and reason, there must be a rational cause for human intelligence. Evolution, naturalism, rejects intelligent causes, and accepts only non-rational or physical causes. Therefore, God is the only explanation for the existence of logic and reason. But how is that argument formulated? Well, no thought or belief can be logical or rational if it derives from a non-rational cause. You see, if evolution or naturalism is true, then all thoughts and beliefs derive from non-rational causes. And therefore, if naturalism is true, then no thought or belief is rational. Therefore, if no thought or belief is rational, then no thought or belief is valid. And if no thought or belief is valid, then the belief naturalism is true is not even valid. A belief whose truth would invalidate the belief itself ought to be rejected and its denial accepted. The denial of naturalism is theism. Therefore, theism ought to be accepted. Yeah, you're amen. You don't know what I just said. Come on. The argument from consciousness. What is an argument from consciousness? Consciousness is the awareness of who we are, what we're feeling, our place in this world. And this argument is based on the concept that our material, immaterial mind or soul, which is the source of consciousness, is separate from our physical brain. Because consciousness is immaterial, it cannot be accounted for by materialism. And consciousness, therefore, can only be accounted for by an immaterial cause, which can only be God. But how is an argument formulated? As humans, we have an undeniable experience of consciousness. Consciousness, again, is an immaterial entity. Naturalism, though, accepts the existence of only material entities. Therefore, naturalism cannot account for consciousness. Therefore, there must be an immaterial source of consciousness. The source can only be God. I want to finish up with you this morning with a classic, take on a classic objection that results from what we have discussed up to now, and that is the objection that creation is just a myth. For many people, the idea of an all-powerful God creating the world out of nothing by the power of his mere breath seems to be impossible. And since this truth can only be understood by the illumination of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, a better strategy is to point out the impossibility of life originating from random processes, right? In short, belief in evolution requires at least as much faith as belief in God. 
evolutionists theorize that life arose through a combination of chance, time, and a primordial soup from which the first living cells emerged. Let's talk about that. Chance. That's the evolutionary theory of chance. Chance. The universe is so finely tuned for life. I touched on it last Shabbat. That if the forces of gravity were changed by 0.0000%, 37 zeros, that small of a percentage, both the sun and the earth would not exist. If a series of flashcards numbered from 1 to 10 were thoroughly mixed up, the probability of laying them down in sequential order is 1 in 3,628,800. Just for 10 cards. Even the the simplest replicating protein molecule that could be imagined has been shown to have a probability of 1 in 10 to the 450th power. Probability theory states that any event that has a probability of less than 1 in 10 to the 110th power can't occur. Its probability becomes zero. But this is part of the evolutionary argument regarding chance. Let's talk about the primordial soup from which living cells emerged in that theory. Well, the theory requires life arising from non-life, which has been never shown to to have happened or to be possible. Scientists have recovered approximately one billion fossils but none of them demonstrates a slow process of evolution. Simply appear, they do, as fully formed creatures. Quote, it is though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists, biologist Dr. Richard Dawkins said. Evolutionists theorize that new features arise through beneficial gene mutations. However, this would require an increase in genetic information. Scientists have never observed a genetic mutation that has resulted in increased genetic information, only decreased information. Noted advocate of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, 19th century British biologist Thomas Huxley once said this, that once stated that if you let monkeys type on a keyboard for a long period of time, eventually they're going to produce the work of Shakespeare. So researchers at Plymouth University decided to test this out in 2003 by putting a computer and a keyboard in a room with six monkeys. Researchers discovered that the monkeys mostly hit the keyboard with a rock and urinated or defecated on the keyboard. The lead researcher dryly noted, quote, obviously English is not their first language. We have established that creation demands a creator. The theory of evolution is shot full of inconsistencies. Evolutionists have seized on many theories within the overall theory of evolution in an attempt to explain the origin of plants, animals, the heavens, and the earth. Over and over, these, quote, theorists try to explain how life evolved from inanimate material into more complex life forms until it reached the pinnacle, us, human beings. And perhaps the biggest reason that so many theories within the overall theory of evolution collapse is because they contain terrible logic requiring great leaps of faith for the believer. Here's one example of a debunked theory. Quote, many evolutionists have tried to argue that humans are 99% similar chemically to apes and blood precipitation tests do indicate that the chimpanzee is people's closest relative. Yet regarding this, we must observe the following. 
Milk chemistry indicates that the donkey is man's closest relative. Cholesterol levels indicate that the garter snake is man's closest relative. Tear enzyme chemistry indicates that the chicken is man's closest relative. On the basis of another type of blood chemistry test, the butter bean is man's closest relative. On the other hand, faith does play a role in this process. The writer of Hebrews says this, quote, and without trusting, without faith, it is what? Impossible to be well-pleasing to God because whoever approaches him must trust that he does exist and that he becomes a rewarder to those who seek him out. Now, notice that this verse, Hebrews eleven six 6, that I just read, says that those seeking God must believe that he is. A deep belief in God who rewards all who diligently seek him requires proof of his existence. And after proof has been established, then and only then can one have faith, can one have trust, absolute confidence that what he or she does is being recorded in the mind of God to be remembered when he or she receives their reward. You see, if one is certain, uncertain rather, about God existing, because proof of that existence has not been firmly established in their minds and in their hearts, then under fire, what happens? Their faith, his or her faith, begins to wane, and in some cases just is disappeared completely. Many people today, though, they understand faith to be a blind act of the will, regardless of the evidence. But the Bible has a very different understanding of what faith is. Biblical faith is a trust in God because he has shown himself to be trustworthy and dependable. Faith in God is unlike, not unlike the faith we put in other people as well. The more evidence we find that someone is really kind, is truly honest, is dependable, the more likely we are, right, to trust him or her. I did not put my faith in my wife, Darcy, when I first met her in August of 1994. Rather, what did I do? I spent time, much time getting to know her, learning about her, learning about the passions in her life and examining her character. And after spending a lot of time with her, I was convinced that she was and still is a trustworthy person who I want or wanted to be with the rest of my life. The same is true with faith in God. He wants us to get to know him so we can see that he is trustworthy. God has given us good evidence of his dependable character, frequently performing miracles, so people will have confidence in his character. Faith isn't something we exercise just one time. How many of you know we need to exercise faith daily? It is a mistake to trust God for the big things of heaven, like salvation, but not the little things on the earth like daily guidance in our lives. God invites us, my friends, to trust him moment by moment for all of our concerns. He is a well-seasoned guide, and he will never, ever lead us astray. But the world at large asks, which God? The scriptures record this, quote, for even if there are so-called gods, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, little g gods and many little l lords yet for us there is one god capital g the father from whom all things but that knowledge is not in everyone first corinthians 8 5 6 and 7 you see the religions of this world have created many 
little g gods of wood, stone, other material. Others rely only on the minds of men. The ancient Greeks actually served over 30,000 gods. Modern Hindus worship 5 million gods. Truly there are, there always has been, as Paul said here, gods many and lords many. But the God of the Bible created all the materials that mankind uses to design their own gods. But as the scriptures record, that knowledge is not in everyone. Such unnecessary ignorance and confusion. So what does science tell us? My friends, be will. Listen, I know over the last two years, it's tough to trust, quote, science. But be willing to examine it on this area. Stand on indisputable facts, facts from a broad array of different kinds of science. They're going to demonstrate to us an all-powerful supreme being. They will demonstrate to us an infinite intelligence, carefully provided more than sufficient proof to remove all doubt that he exists if we are willing to look at science. The Bible is God's instruction to man. He expects all who read it, who are willing to at least read it, to, quote, test everything, hold on to what is good. Surely this God would not then expect us to assume his existence if he's telling us to test it while instructing us to test everything else from his word. Think rationally, think clearly, then accept what can be proven. I want to talk to you about the most perfect clock for a moment. This will blow your mind. In my generation, Gen X, most of us own a watch. But some watches are more accurate than other watches. How accurate is your watch? How long before your watch loses a second? I didn't actually bring mine today. Mine has lost all seconds and needs new batteries. But. but when this happens, when it loses a second, it can be adjusted, right, by calculating from a more accurate source. The source, whatever it is, is also imperfect and has to be regularly updated, though not as often as your watch to be in sync with the master clock of the universe, uh, excuse me, the master clock of the United States at the Naval Observatory in Washington. For many years, until 1967, Naval Observatory astronomers, quote, observed the motion of the Earth in relation to the heavens to accurately measure time. And so all clocks in the United States were set in relation back in 67 to these very precise measurements. Actually, it was God who made this master clock of the universe. He set the heavens in motion, and mankind learned how to use it for accuracy purposes. As marvelous as this master clock in Washington is, the story doesn't even end there. In 1967, the same year, scientists built what we call the atomic clock, right? The atomic clock uses cesium-133 atoms because they oscillate, they vibrate at a rate of 9,192,631,770 times a second. This produces accuracy within one second every 30 million years. Wouldn't you love to have a watch that's that accurate? Cesium-133 atoms never vary a single vibration. They are steady. They are constant. They are reliable. They cannot be an accident of nature that just happens. They always turn out exactly the same. God had to design the complexity and reliability of these atoms. No honest mind, if you're being honest, can, 
can believe otherwise. Men merely learn to capture what God has already designed for use in time measurement. And again, the story goes on. Scientists in Boulder, Colorado at the National Institute of Standards and Technology have built an optical clock that's even more accurate than that. How? By measuring time with light. Time is now measured in what is called femtoseconds, or a million billionth of a second. These clocks use mercury ions at their heart to count the number of times that they vibrate in a second. And so optical frequencies regularly oscillate. Remember we talked about the atomic clock, the nine billion oscillations? Per, at one million billion, that's one quadrillion times per second. By using lasers and cooled down mercury ions, scientists have harnessed God's precision to better measure time. Optical clocks only slip by one second every 30 billion years. This is 1,000 times more accurate than the atomic clocks. And so as with the movement of the heavens... Man has learned to capture the reliability of cesium-133 atoms and the movement of cooled mercury ions to count time. Their number of oscillations per second, it never, ever varies. Could this perfect order be the product of an accident? With only great time and effort, the finest watchmakers in the world can, and at best, they devise several kinds of relatively imprecise clocks. Can any honest fair-minded human then believe that the three highly precise clocks, the heavens, atomic, optical clocks, came about by accident. In other words, are we to believe, my friends, that, we, that while very sophisticated, humanly devised watches required the effort and ingenuity of skilled, intelligent men to create them, clocks of far greater sophistication, precision, and design developed just on their own? How utterly ridiculous. Only the greatest watchmaker could have devised these greatest watches. Let's talk quickly about the complexity of life, and then we'll close. Everyone has witnessed explosions. Have you ever seen an orderly explosion? Or one that created a watch or a clock? <laughs> or one that produced a single thing of exquisite design instead of a certain result of destruction and chaos? If you throw a million hand grenades, you would see them produce chaos and destruction a million times. These would never be an exception. There would never be an exception to those million grenades. They would all produce chaos and destruction a million times. Consider the following quote. Involving the likelihood of an explosion, creating the entire natural realm of life all around us on the earth, let alone the beautiful magnificence and order that that's seen no matter how far we look into the cosmos. Dr. B.G. Rangenthan said this, quote, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. And this only speaks of the likelihood of any life at all, rather than the most highly complex life, such as large animals, and human beings, let alone all different kinds of life that we find in existence today. I'm going to give you a sheet. You can see me after the services as well for some free resources online that you can check out. And you can just 
put that down, and you can come and grab one of those sheets up after the service ends. We're going to pick this up after the festival of Shavuot next week. We're going to look at several common arguments and objections to the faith, common to everybody, including Jewish people. I'm going to finish off by reading some quotes from Dr. Michael Brown in his Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 1. In the introduction on page 25, excuse me, page 15, he writes this. For many centuries, Jews and Christians alike have accepted without question the statement, Jews don't believe in Jesus. In fact, many have become so accustomed to this way of thinking that few realize such a statement is actually quite ironic, not to mention somewhat bizarre. Consider for a moment that Jesus, or as he would have been known to his contemporaries, Yeshua, was born a Jew, raised in a Jewish community, lived and worked as a Jew among Jews, worshipped at the temple as a faithful Jew, attended synagogue regularly, taught as a Jew, ultimately died as a Jew with the Hebrew scriptures on his lips. He spent almost his entire life in constant interaction with fellow Jews and all his immediate followers were Jewish. He was welcomed by many of his Jewish contemporaries as the promised Messiah. He pointed to the words of the Israelite prophets to explain his mission. He spent virtually all his time, with precious few exceptions, preaching to Jews, healing their sicknesses, meeting their deep and spiritual emotional needs. Out of the countless thousands of people whose lives he directly touched, few of them were non-Jews. When reports circulated that he had risen from the dead, Jewish women were the first eyewitnesses, and Jewish men announced this good news to crowds of interested religious Jews. It was Jews who told other Jews about his resurrection, and Jews who healed other Jews in his name. Of the large numbers of those who first put their faith in him, all of them were Jews. In fact, it was several years before any Gentiles became part of this community of believers. How can it be that of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Jewish people are known in particular as the ones who do not believe in Jesus? The good news is that there have always been Jews who have believed in Jesus as Messiah. Even if they have been in the great minority in every century, thousands of Jews have recognized and followed Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. Today, many tens of thousands of Jews believe in Jesus, possibly even hundreds of thousands we need to tackle the objections Jewish people have to Jesus in an honest, fair, and comprehensive matter, manner. And we're going to start doing that after Shavuot. If you'd stand with me today. Lord, I want to pray for Generation Z. Lord, we saw this week a shooter who had no father influence in his life. We're having a conference in a week that's going to deal with those issues. We see, Lord, as a generation, their skepticism. But, Father, we ask that you would go deep into the heart of Generation Z and provide rational, logical arguments for the existence of God. Lord, it's no accident that these young people are being led away because they've no, got no foundation. They've got no biblical worldview. They don't have a father figure. They need to be in a place where their faith can be challenged, that they can doubt their doubts and feel confident among their peer group. 
Lord, I've got two, my wife and I have two Gen Z kids, and we recognize the challenges. Many of you have your own kids in high school and growing up in elementary and middle school, and you understand the challenges as they get older and begin to put weight and challenge their parents' faith. Lord, we ask that they would come out with faith of their own, solidly, Lord, even intellectually solid. So, Lord, we lift up this generation. Lord, there are 19 Generation Z kids that are no longer on planet Earth. We believe they're in heavenly places even now with you. Father, I thank you that even with this horrific tragedy that there are ways to proclaim the good news of Yeshua. I thank you for that Hispanic pastor that CNN interviewed, that Baptist pastor, and Don Lemon was struggling with apparently, I believe, a family member as well was taken from him in 2018, and he's never gotten good answers. And he began on air to just shed his soul, and, and the pastor was preaching into his soul. Lord, I, even in this horrific situation, God, that you would allow the good news to go forth, that their lives would not be for nothing, Lord God, that it would promote a repentance around the country. Lord, what's it going to take for our country to turn back to you? Lord, as churches all day tomorrow, as synagogues today, Messianic synagogue, taking the day to repent, to be on their faces. Lord God, it must start with us. We intercede for this young generation now. We thank you, Lord, that as we invite them here, Lord, that their challenges would be met. Not just, you got to believe, but intellectually being challenged with all that they're getting in their public education. So, Lord, may we be up to the challenge. Maybe we be up, Lord, to defending and to study apologetics and to get boned up on these matters, Lord. When we're out on the college campus, when we're out on the streets on Rosecrans, when we're doing evangelism in the highways and byways, Lord, always have a defense for the faith that is within us. Thank you, Lord, for this equipping time, for this time of fellowship and worship where we can express our deep longings back to you today. Thank you for comforting our hearts. Thank you as we celebrate those who have fought and died for our country this weekend, Lord. It would not just be a time of barbecues, but a time of real prayer, introspection, and intercession. We love you and we praise you. And as God told Moses to tell Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel, receive God's blessing in his word with these words, his words. May the Lord bless you and keep you on this day. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. And all of us who are with him to the end said, Amen, be amen. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shavuot next Shabbat morning. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. 
Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.